Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate Squatch player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average Squatch player is I've also made Squatch my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is Anderson Good, who has the distinction of becoming the youngest head coach of a Division I squash program while he was overseeing the men's and women's program at George Washington University. In this episode, we go through what the experience was like for himself and the team when they learn about the athletic department's decision to cut squash from their varsity sports offerings. Anderson shares what it's like starting a new squash conference during his time at GW, called the Mid-Atlantic Squash Conference. Then we dive into sports gambling, which was the subject matter of his thesis while pursuing his master's degree. We also cover a variety of other topics, along with our quickfire questions where we get to know the guest in a little bit different light. Take a listen, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey there, Squash Radio fans. Welcome back to another episode. We are thrilled to have another guest calling in today from Washington, D.C., and that is Anderson Good. Welcome to the show, Anderson. Connor, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So I can't wait to get into this interview, and it's been fun prepping with you. But one of the distinctions that drew out, and I kind of knew this, but I don't think until I just asked, is like, you have been one of the youngest Division One coaches ever in squash history. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was an exciting opportunity that came about here and good timing was in the right place at the right time and everything all kind of fell into place. And you're obviously taking over uh, the reins from the legend Wendy Lawrence and you were working together for about, was it four years? Four years. Yep. So talk a little bit about that experience of like going from assistant coach to head coach. How was that for you? It was unique. Certainly with a lot of my players, they had only seen me as the assistant coach and the role of the assistant coach and the role of the head coach, I think are two, you know, they play different roles in a variety of issues amongst a team. So that transition was easier with some than others, but all in all, I I was always very lucky and took a lot of pride in the relationships that I was able to foster with a lot of my players. And I think in the grand scheme of things, it was a very smooth transition, but being able to work with Wendy and kind of Getting to see how it was done for four years, it kind of gave me some comfort just that I had experienced it for that long and felt so comfortable and that I was just moving up a title. I wasn't relocating. I wasn't doing all the other things that kind of add stress to a professional move. So yeah, I was very lucky to be to get into the GW squash situation when I did. So there's many reasons why GW would be in the headlines. The program success that it, under uh, your reign as well as Wendy that you've achieved has really been remarkable in terms of both at the team level and even individually where you just had two finalists of the highest ranking awards in the College Squash Awards show. But the other, uh, so, and I do want to touch on that, but also equally also give sort of acknowledgement that the other way that GW's been making headlines is the unfortunate news of hearing that they're going to be cutting their program. And, mm-hmm. you know, can you talk us through when you heard that and how you reacted to that? And also Squash wasn't alone within this this cutting and, and talk about that. Yeah, so I'll say that, so 
COVID so shutdown started, I guess, mid-March with individuals. The first weekend of March, we were about as lucky as it could be with getting our full season in in 1920. But that's when things started to go into lockdown. And then I think by about April or May, the economic impacts really, you started to see it, and especially in higher education, schools having to refund room and board, kids not signing up for summer classes. For instance, GW depends really heavily on interns using their dorms over the summer. That's a big source of revenue. And that was all gone now. So as the economic situation became more and more clear, our athletic director communicated with head coaches, I guess it was probably in May, that cuts were being considered and would likely occur. And then we were kind of just brought along for the next few months and just, yeah, we're working on it. Yeah, we're working on it. And that was a challenging time. In a Division One athletic department, a sport like squash, it's kind of obvious that we're a type of sport that in this sort of athletic department would be one of the first to go, at least on paper. It was from my position that we had had such consistent and sustained success for the last better part of a decade. And then combined, and I thought this was kind of a bit of an X factor, was that we were only one of five teams that actually competed in downtown Washington, D.C. Of the 27 teams, the rest competed off campus sites. And I thought there was value to that, you know, that we'd get a couple hundred people at big home matches. And we were one of the few sports that actually competed right in the heart of Washington, D.C. and not out at the Mount Vernon campus a few miles outside of town. So, yeah. And then July 31st, I got a call early Friday morning and it was with our athletic director and then a member of HR joined right after she joined. And then I knew what was happening. It was challenging kind of having this cloud over us coaches because I wasn't the only sport in who felt that. And then in that amount of time, we saw Stanford cut their team, Brown cut their team. And so many other schools had made similar moves that you kind of start to overthink it and analyze it. And it was a challenging time. And then, you know, I was told the morning of the 31st of July. And then there was a call with all seven of the teams that were discontinued. Men's and women's squash were two of them. And then let's see, it was men's tennis, women's water polo, men's indoor track, men's crew, and sailing, which is a co-ed sport. And very nicely, they gave all the teams the ability to compete this year, obviously compete in quotation marks, but to GW's credit, at least speaking to the athletic department administration, they made every effort to try and make sure that we were in a position to try and compete. Unfortunately, that did not become feasible for a variety of reasons, but at least we had time to weigh options and we weren't just kind of immediately kicked to the curb. So out of a very unfortunate situation, there was a little bit of good in there as in it could have been worse, but yeah, it was challenging. It was, there's not a whole lot you can say and in a leadership position, you're you feel like you need to have all the answers. And at that moment, I didn't, there were, there was nothing I could say. There were no answers. And, um, I'm, I'm curious cause not only, um, you know, I'm very mindful <clears throat> that you are also, uh, representing your players. And so when you found out the news, w- did your players find out the same time or then did you have to communicate it to your players as well? So, um, I think my meeting was at like eight 30 in the morning and then our athletic director did a call with all a hundred of the athletes that were impacted at like 11 AM. And then I had a call with both teams probably around one or one 30. Um, I yeah, can, that, that I was, can only imagine, you know, putting myself in, in the shoes of being an athlete competing in college and there's a lot of sacrifice that goes on not only to just get there but then while you're in college and especially at division one programs where 
sports is just such on a the same pedestal is probably not the right word, but it's a demarcation on campus. And so your athletes there, what's your recollection of how they handled sharing the, or hearing the news? You know, it was, I think, mixed, mixed. I, I think there was a collective devastation, but then I think reality set in that for, we had six total seniors for them. It was just like, all right, we're just going to kind of ride this out, I think. And then we had a small junior class who all of whom will just stay at GW. And then it was, the issue was, I think the more dramatic decisions that had to be made were the incoming first years and the rising sophomores that they were in a position of, okay, so do I transfer and kind of give up everything that I've built here at GW or do I cut my athletic career short and keep on keeping on at GW? And I, one nuance to this that I think is specific to squash, and I think some other sports that are interdivisional, and when I say inter, Division One and Division Three compete on the same playing field, that at least from an academic standpoint, there are a lot of programs at GW where you can't transfer to a program that's going to be better. You know that if you're get into the Elliott School of International Affairs at GW, it's there's maybe one or two schools that would be an upgrade from that. So for incoming first year, it's kind of having to make a decision. All right. So what's more important, squash or academics? And just know, just knowing where I was as an 18 year old starting college and the insecurities and fears that I had, I couldn't imagine making a decision like that. Everybody had their own situation. I think for all of us, an extremely turbulent time, yet here this is highlighted that just an extra layer of turbulence uh, of so many things going on. And a question for that I have is what inspiration did you look towards in terms of how to navigate this? Like, did you pull back on something from when, uh, for inspiration or did you find something new for how to navigate this? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good question. I think poignant is the right word because that is an internal dialogue that I had with myself a lot is that not only are my players going through a whole added layer of turmoil when they're already losing a semester of their college experience, so the best four years of their life. But I'm also now in a similar situation to them that I, I'm losing my job, that we're all kind of in it. Um, and all of this pales in comparison to the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. And I think that was one thing that kind of kept me grounded of taking a step back and reminding myself that it could be a whole lot worse when you kind of look at it from the big picture. Um, so I think that was an important way to look at it, but also I think uh, another good way that I try to approach it is that to look towards the future that if I can navigate this, I think I can navigate a lot of other things. Um, and I think that is kind of been the mantra that's, I've been telling myself a lot is that this has been a year unlike anybody could ever plan. <laughs> and then, um, so we can navigate this and get on the other side stronger and better than the way we started. I think we're doing all right. And we can, uh, apply those skills to a lot of other areas of life. So those are the few things that kind of kept me going. One of the things I also wanted to take a moment on here is to also acknowledge the accumulated accolades and distinctions that under your tenure as well as with Wendy. And the program has really achieved a lot. And I'd love for you to spend a little bit of time of looking back on that, of what you're most proud of, of the program. Yeah, I think there's there are two answers to that. There are the immeasurables and the measurables. And from a coaching standpoint, seeing how your athletes evolve from when they step on campus as 18-year-olds to when they graduate, that's something that's very special and can't really be measured, but it's something that you keep with you forever. But it, it was cool. At the, we had our senior day presentation a few weeks back, and this current senior class was the first class that it, when I was an assistant, I was really involved in the recruiting process with. So it, it felt kind of like a bittersweet ending of really being able to see the full revolution that all of them experienced. And so that was really, really special. But at least from an accolade standpoint, our men's program winning back-to-back -back Cone Cups, that was, oh, that was a lot of fun. And that's number nine in the in the country, right? Correct. Yeah, division yes. two winners, yeah. Correct. That's the B division, yes. And so we won in 
2018 and 2019. And each win, were, they were polar opposite to one another. And it was the, the first year we were the two seed in the division and Yale was the one seed. And at that point, and, and I went through this kind of mindset at St. Lawrence as a player as well of this storied programs going up against kind of the new kid on the block, the younger program that are gradually working their way up the rankings. And there's that competitiveness there that added layer to it. So we were lucky enough to, to beat Yale in the final that year. And it was great. We had played them a month earlier and lost 7-2. And it was not close. That 7-2 was not close. I think there might have been one bagel in there too, an 11-0 game. So it, yeah, it was, um, that match was not close. And we played them a month later and beat them 6-3. Wow. And we had two five-game matches go our way. And then we flipped three matches. And just the energy from the group that day was, that was such a special day for me. It was our first time ever beating Yale. When you kind of take a step back and think holistically, if you ever thought that GW as a varsity program would be beating Yale and men's squash. And it's cool. And it's cool for the program. It's cool for the alumni who all had a role in getting us to where we were. So yeah, it was really special. And then the next year we had our hopes set on getting into the A division, the top eight. And then we had some injuries. We had some other issues with guys in the lineup. And we had a tough loss right at the beginning of the year that kind of really gave us a big uphill battle for the entire season in terms of our rankings. So by the time we got to nationals, we were the seventh seed. And we went on a tear and we upset the two seed. We upset the three seed, which is St. Lawrence. That was also a, a different experience, beating my alma mater and then beat Drexel in the final. So to go back to back, which was a lot of fun. So that was um, those two. And I was, I was the assistant coach for both of those two years. So that was, those were very, very special. And groups that I'm still in contact with today. I, I've spoken with many members of those teams who have since graduated within the last week or two. So very special experiences. And then on the women's side, a lot of very strong All-Americans performances since I've been since I've been at GW, Gabby Porras, Brianne Flynn, and then most recently Zoe Fu, who was recently awarded the, the Richie Award, the highest women's college squash award that can be given. She was, Zoe was the first ever first team All-American GW squash history. She achieved that this past year, which was a lot of fun to be a part of. And then as a team, continuing to progress as a group, progress against adversity, and then kind of build on what we learned from trials and tribulations. So, and just kind of being consistent within the in that B division and that nine through 16 rankings. So individual accolades collective accolades. It's all been a lot of fun and I've been very, very lucky to be able to experience it. Yeah. I mean, the program history has definitely achieved a lot in, in a relatively short period of time. In fact, it started just in uh, 2007, nine. I believe the first year of varsity competition was 2002. 2002, 2002 2003, I believe is the first year of competition. So it's, it's achieved a lot. And one of the other things I wanted to sort of point out, because you also started kind of, I don't want to even call it a side project, but you took on a huge initiative mm. <laughs> in starting a conference called MASK, the Mid-Atlantic... Squash Conference. The Mid-Atlantic Squash Conference. And mm. one thing I give you the huge credit for is a lot of times people can point out problems. It's mm. very different to then create the solutions around that. And so... Not only did you identify, and I concur that this is a huge need because there are established conferences like the Ivy Leagues or the NESCACs, and you were right. There's a whole other uh, dearth of programs that don't have a home. And so mm. let, let me, that's sort of my like quick intro there, but why don't you talk us through what was the spark here and um, what's going on with MASK? Yeah, so in the summer of 2017 is kind of when I had the, epiphany, if you will, of being like, all right, there are all these schools who are all in Pennsylvania, DC, Virginia, Maryland. We all play each other on the same weekends. None of us have a conference since our schools are in other conferences that don't sponsor squash. So we're unaffiliated. And, and then I kind of took a step 
further back and at least my own time at St. Lawrence and a part and the Liberty League championships were always a lot of fun and helped kind of add another layer to the rivalry between St. Lawrence and Rochester. And I thought of ways that squash is a game that I love and I'm now in a position to be able to grow it. And so I pitched the idea to Wendy, who at the time was, you know, the head coach, I was the assistant coach. And the idea being that we form the first ever squash specific athletic conference for varsity programs, predominantly located in the mid-Atlantic region who have varsity teams, but don't have an official conference to compete in. And Wendy was, yeah, go for it. So, and for something like that, you kind of have to do it a year in advance because scheduling takes place a year in advance. So hence why saying that um, start in the summer of 2017 and then our first season of competition was 1819. And that year it was GW, UVA, Dickinson, Franklin and Marshall and MIT in the men's division. And then GW, UVA, Franklin, Marshall, and Dickinson in the women's division. And that was a terrific event. Definitely a, a big learning experience. And we were kind of, yeah, what, for, yeah. Yeah. What was the biggest, I can imagine all of the like, oh my gosh, I didn't know this needed to get done. So what was sort of like, if you had a, a piece of advice to give, you know, cause I'm sure this is happening maybe somewhere in the Midwest or somewhere mm-hmm. in the West coast eventually, what's yeah. the sort of nugget of advice you would give? Yeah, that it's, there's a lot of work most certainly, but it's all worth it when you see the experience that the student athletes have. And at at the end of the day, when you kind of dumb it down, what you're, what we're trying to do is enhance the experience of our players, of the student athletes and adding conference competition to that improves that experience. And so while at times it may seem challenging or overbearing in terms of the workload, it's a hundred percent worth it. But yeah, having to kind of run the event, run the coaches meeting, and then also coach two teams simultaneous to all of it. Yeah. It was an exciting weekend, but it was great. And and in terms of like a practical thing, is it basically presenting the idea or getting buy-in from the coaches? Then it's, this is what's interesting. And you were sort of touching on this is it's its own entity. And so talk about why do you need that? Why is that different versus there are certain mechanics of this? So talk a little mm. about the mechanics of, of getting a league started. Yeah. So I'll kind of walk you through our path. And I think it's probably sports specific, especially if it's varsity sports. But the first step was getting coaches to sign on. And typically head coaches would have to speak with their administrators for them to clear it. And a big hurdle that we were running into is that a lot of administrators were looking for bylaws, conference bylaws. And so that was something that I had to educate myself on. I had to write conference bylaws for administrators to sign off on them. And then so, and and during this time we were in communication with college squash and kind of telling them what we were doing, what the goals were and just letting them know that this was, and so the way college squash left it with us, it was kind of like, all right, let's see how you do this year. And we'll talk at the end of the year. And I think it went great. And I think the CSA agreed that this was something that was, that was valuable. So um, the next step was we had an official proposal of our bylaws to the college squash association board of directors. They read them over. They basically got back to me with any questions, concerns, changes that they might request. And then they eventually approved us for provisional status as an officially recognized athletic conference by the CSA, joining only the Ivy League, the NESCAC, and the the Liberty League. So, and then on top of that, then, but with it by the CSA legitimizing us, that legitimized us to other schools. So then once that happened, Drexel joined, the Naval Academy joined on the on the men's side. So we grew the next year and then, yeah, and then it, it turned into giving out annual awards, things that the Ivy League does, the NESCAC does, all conference team, coach of the year, player of the year, stuff like that. Again, just adding infrastructure to the game. That's, again, I applaud you for so many reasons on helping to champion this and others that also bought into it early, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a lot of work on everyone's side. 
But you, you're so right that it's interesting. These things that we take for granted used to not be there. <laughs> like yeah. at some point, the Liberty Bell League had to get started. And so it's, it's just such a, a, a great thing. And it sounds like this will be an endeavor that you're going to have as part of moving forward too, right? What do you see for growth with or the opportunities of where you want to see the league in, like, let's say, five years? Yeah. So when I started it, my kind of mindset was when you look at any, typically we'll start with college athletic rivalry, nine times out of 10, that is conference-based. And that I think is something that we take for granted, but that is the infrastructure that adds history and tradition to our sports. And that history and tradition has to start somewhere. And for a sport that's relatively in its infancy compared to a lot of other collegiate sports, a sport like squash has to add that infrastructure. So that was kind of the general goal of what we were trying to do. And then on top of that, in terms of looking forward, is a potential future landing spot for new varsity programs that if there's somebody who's really pushing for a varsity program to be launched at X school, they can go to administrators of the board and say, okay, so there's X, Y, Z schools that are in this conference. Then they've already said that we can join and, and we will be able to play all of these pre-existing varsity programs. Again, it's just the general goal, just adding infrastructure to the sport and that hopefully I can kind of catalyze continued growth and I hopefully it can be landing spots for future varsity programs. I think that would be a great legacy to have. I, I think those mechanics, you're hundred percent correct that those simple mechanics are needed in order for a lot of times, a people don't know what squash is. Let's mm-hmm. just start with that sort of perspective and whether that is an administrator in let's pick a school in Indiana who doesn't know what squash is. They're going to vet this compared to other programs that they're familiar with and you're 100% right that those conferences and when I was uh, peeking under the hood for for Denison to go varsity many many years ago there was a you have to put together a, a package and one of the things they ask is the conference so they do look at this stuff and it is very important and you're the first like you said the first squash specific league to be created so that's exciting yeah no it's it's been a lot of fun and it's been a tremendous pro- professionally it's been a different thing for me to to learn and different roles to undertake. So it's been an incredible learning experience for me and I'm happy that I'll be able to stay involved with it kind of moving forward. We're gonna take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we wanna thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just wanna say you've sponsored other avenues, but Squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring Squash? I think there's just a a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments, I've been to professional tournaments, and you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com slash LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. Well, speaking of other things that you've learned, you, while being the head coach at the GW, also earned yourself a master's degree in the political management. And I know I'm kind of butchering that title. So why don't you give the the sort of high level and what sort of drew you to this degree? Yeah. So it's in the GW School of Political Management. It's a, a master's program. And so at St. Lawrence in my undergrad days, I was a government and communications major. And my dad was from Washington, worked for the federal government for 20 some odd years. You know, it was always something that I was interested in. I um, actually through go figure, a St. Lawrence connection at a networking event in Washington, D.C., 
learned about this GW School of Political Management Legislative Affairs master's program. And it's kind of in very gradual terms, le learning the inner workings of Congress, working through kind of that, the policy nuances, whether at the state or the federal level. But um, <laughs> the main area of focus that I undertook was legal sports gambling. Because a big thing that I've always really enjoyed is looking at sport at, from a more broader perspective, the intersection it can have with politics and, and policy and looking at the politics of sports betting and how it could potentially enhance the sport of squash and where, at least in terms of growth with the industry as a whole, and then looking at it again, how that can apply to squash and maybe catalyze some growth for the game across the world. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and so you basically wrote your thesis on that mm -hmm. with the, the path of legalization in sports. So w why don't we quickly lay out sort of the arguments for and against? And I, I have to also preface, I'm not totally understanding of why we wouldn't legalize it. Like I'm very much for legalization of lots of things. Mm -hmm. I think it makes it safer, better, de democratized. So kind of before we get into your opinions, how would you lay out the two arguments on that side? Yeah. So the people who support it, I think there are two kind of major schools of thought. One, the crazy sports fan who's going to bet on sports, whether it's from an offshore account or some other way, the bets are getting made, whether they're legal or illegal. They're going to happen one way or the other. So that's one. Two is the economic benefits and the, and the new forms of tax revenue that it can provide to a state. And I think that, at least politically, is the biggest catalyst for its growth, right? That if a state and to give some context, the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act of 1992 was struck down by the Supreme Court in May of 2018. Ultimately, what that meant is that states were now free to legislate legal sports gambling on their own. It was now not a federal issue. It was so each state could do with it as they pleased. So New Jersey was the first state to legalize it, and they've since made hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue annually. So the economic benefits are the big thing. And what I've learned in my analysis is that the economic benefits tend to outweigh the concerns and the main concern being problem gambling or gambling addiction. And the way, at least from a policy and rhetorical standpoint that legislators tend to get around this is that most bills now will have kind of an earmark for X dollars annually go towards supporting gambling addiction. Right. So that's kind of the, the arguments against it are more the kind of the moral standpoint, which I understand and have grounds, but yeah, there's a lot of growth potential for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a certain, I think that those, when you boil those down, those are going to be the concerns for like anything that, whether you're talking about even alcohol, right? There's addiction mm -hmm. there, marijuana, which is coming in potential addiction problems. So that makes sense. And I think for me, the biggest differentiator now is that so much of this, I think, is going to take place digitally versus what you were talking about with New Jersey and not, this isn't 100% accurate, but it was very much casino-based. And so casinos with physical areas comes with a slew of other problems like increased crime. You know, certainly the when you when you're driving past it every day, there's that that immediate pull. So mm. I wonder if like sort of this when the digital error is helping to accelerate it. What are your thoughts on that? So it sounds weird to talk about industries or entities that have benefited from this pandemic, but sports gambling 100% has benefited exponentially from this. So for one, mobile gambling. And when I say that opening up FanDuel, Barstool, DraftKings on your phone and just being able to place a normal bet on a spread of a football game rather than having to drive out to a casino and have to be on the grounds to be able to place one there. Because of COVID, a lot of states loosened their legislation to allow for mobile betting. And what happened is a lot of money was wagered and states started to make a decent amount of money from that. And people realized it's like, oh, this is a way better way to do this because it's interesting since sports gambling is legislated at the state level no two state legalizes it in the same way so some states for instance you have to be within a casino to be able to place a legal sports wager whereas in pennsylvania new jersey you can just be on your phone within the state limits and you can place a bet wherever you want 
so with COVID kind of enhancing the mobile aspect of it and see and showing the potential of how large it can be, states are seeing that it is a cash cow. And then because of the COVID-19 pandemic and every state in the country is experiencing a deficit, they need money to start to make up for that. And when you tell your constituents, yeah, we can make $50 million annually in tax revenue, I think that is kind of where that conversation ends, especially when there's a national economic crisis. We can deal with problem gambling if this is something that's going to start to help rebuild our state. So if we're looking at the map of the United States, talk us through like how many currently have legalized betting and how many are kind of, what do you think that's going to look like over the next couple of years? Yeah. So 26 states and the District of Columbia currently have legal sports gambling to some extent. And that's kind of what I was touching on that, like, for instance, in Washington state, as of right now, you can only place sports wagers on in a tribal casino. And that's a whole other can of worms is the influence of the tribal gaming compacts that they have with state legislatures. But at least with, so there, all right, so there's 26 states, NDC all have it. And then 14 states currently have active or pre-filed legislation for 2021. And so, and it's interesting because a big part of my research is kind of this exact question is looking at the future and what kind of where it's headed. And it's interesting. There's, there have been one, there's the rhetoric has changed around legislators and how they speak about this issue. And now it's getting to the point that I saw a statistic the other night that over 100 million people live in states that have access to some form of legal sports gambling, which is ultimately about a third of the country. So now it's getting to the point where state legislators are like, okay, so we cannot legalize this and just lose money to our neighbors, or we can just legalize it ourselves and make money. So, and I think now we're at the point now that about half the country has it, that it's going to create a domino effect that, for instance, you even look down in DC, Maryland, and Virginia, DC legalized it, then Virginia legalized it in, what was it, March of 2021? And so now Maryland's kind of trailing behind. And so that's what's happening is that people can drive into one of the three jurisdictions and place their bets. And ultimately what's happening is their home state is losing money because they're traveling to another jurisdiction to take advantage of those laws. So, and I think a lot of states, especially now with the economic deficit from COVID are just going to be like, all right, let's take this money. Quickly on that yeah. for, for sort of, and I'm not well versed in this, but I do know sort of in Europe where betting is, 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 is very legal and it's done mm-hmm. prolifically the PSA. So any professional squash match, they have their kind of system and standards of what gets done or not at a broadcast level. So I don't know the specifics, but there are ones that are uh, approved for betting and they're monitored both from an AI perspective of betting irregularities. So Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence plus also human monitoring. So Mm -hmm. think of what gets deployed for uh, day trading and the systems and measures that are in place against computer trading. So there are already established sort of um, safeguards for mm-hmm. what is o- approved to be bet on in Europe. And I wonder from a compliance issue, whether that would, would meet the threshold in the U S I have to imagine maybe um, yeah. to yes, but anyway, so, so that for background, there are certain right. matches that are bet in Europe. Yeah. So it, it's funny. I, I follow this account on Instagram that is kind of like a squash handicapping account. It's just at squash. And that's how I initially found out that you could actually bet on squash over in Europe. And my first thought was, especially with my own educational background at the time, because I found out about it kind of right in the midst of researching all of this, it was like, why isn't this in the US? Why do I have the opportunity to bet on Russian ping pong, but I can't bet on a PSA squash match? Not that I would be able to, as a collegiate athletic coach, I would not be able to bet on sports, which is all kind of the ironic part of this, but just seeing the opportunities, that, but it's a different market of people to attract. It's different eyes. It's different revenue streams. It's different, it's different everything. And I think diversifying the markets that squash gets itself into makes a lot of sense just to, con- to continually grow the game. So yeah, I think it's a really great way to move things forward. And in terms of your 
I assume you did a fair amount of analysis or research on on what sports are bet on and, and those kind of things. And so one one of the questions I have is, and it's hard with like football. I think that's such a big mm-hmm. one in basketball. But let's say other sports like tennis or there, I have to imagine people say like, well, no one will care to bet on squash. But I, I think that there's actually the, just as like certain investors go into other areas that other people don't pay attention to, there might be opportunity there to get in where there isn't as much attention. So I wanted to, exactly. that's kind of what I was thinking and I wanted to hear mm-hmm. from, from you. No. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It was interesting last night, go figure. I was reading a statement from either the COO or the CEO of DraftKings. And one of their biggest focuses during the pandemic was diversifying their offerings of, and by offerings, the sports that you can bet on. And it was funny. And this was a direct quote that they said table tennis got them through the pandemic. When the big four sports in the U.S. all shut down, they relied on table tennis to get them through the pandemic, which I, I found to be fascinating. And obviously squash at that point was not participating, but why couldn't, had they been, if squash was participating, why could not, why couldn't that have been squashed? And that's a whole different way for the game to grow. But no, in in terms of, why would people want to bet on squash? It's a different way. It, yeah, it, I, the stock market um, analogy, I think, is a perfect example that you're going to find people who are looking for different ways, don't get as much attention, don't get as much scrutiny where things may be a little more cut and dry. Maybe maybe squash is that alternative, and you're, you're going to find that in something like gambling. So in writing this thesis, what was one of the most fascinating nuggets that you found during this research process? And then also sort of in putting together your thesis, is there anything that hit the cutting room floor for you that was equally interesting? Kind of curious about that. Yeah. So the the most interesting thing, I think it was, well, one, just just my own knowledge about the industry of just how quickly this industry is exploding. Like the fact that, I mean, you take a look at the big sports book and the growth that they've experienced on the stock market from the beginning of COVID to now has been granted. A lot of stocks have had that, but to see the industry growth has been absolutely fascinating. And then this is more kind of my kind of nerd side coming out, but it's been very interesting to see the influence of Native American reservations that they have had in this. Because now as we look towards the future and a lot of these other states who want to legalize and get in on this new cash cow, if you will, a lot of the hurdles that they're experiencing is that all of these states signed what are called compacts. And basically what that means is that states have these agreements that the Native American reservations, they would operate the gambling in the state. And that's a part of the state constitution. And they have to negotiate these compacts with the tribes every 10, 20 years or so. And so these compacts, I think I was looking at it last night, about 10 or so states right now, they're having a major, major influence in where this is going in their state. And from a political standpoint, that's not something you see every day. This that sort of influence. And so that um, I always found to be quite interesting and that, yeah, basically there's three levels of government all in play here, federal, state, tribal. And uh, with what you just spelled out, what would be the domino impact of that? I'm not as familiar with what you just were saying. So can you spell that out a little bit? Yeah. So when I say the domino effect, I more me, I speak to that economically, that legislators in states, regardless of their situations with Native American reservations and with casinos, that states are going to see their neighbors getting money from this and that they're going to be like, okay, two of our four bordering states have this. Not yeah. Anymore. No, right? th- that I understand. The Then it's mm-hmm. the, the intricacies of the compacts you're de- describing. So yes. it sounds like that they have a, a, a fair amount of clout in terms of how this can go. And so mm-hmm. where is that clout being channeled or which direction is that going in or how will it be used? So again, these compacts are state by state, they're different state by state and they're renegotiated. But a lot of them have that these tribes have exclusive rights to all the gambling in a state. And so what you're seeing now is a lot of these state legislators are like, oh, wow, our state budgets have just been slashed because of this pandemic. We need to make up for this. There is a way for us to be able to do this with sports gambling 
granted, it's not going to completely recoup all of their losses, but it will start things. It will help. And so now they have to go through the tribes to try and allow to, to basically negotiate with them so that they have to sign off on everything. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the liquor laws and and how much that varies state to state, like who can sell what and when and timing. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, equal level of challenges. <laughs> yeah. And that, and yeah. And then there are federal laws that impact the industry as well. It's, there's a lot of, it's very complex. It's very nuanced. But yeah. As you can tell, it's been, it's something I've really sunk my teeth into and it's been a way just for a diff- different type of growth as I've been at GW. And that's one of the things, one of the many reasons why I'm so grateful for the, the time that I had here. It's been a, a very educational and fun experience, at least looking into this topic. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think that th- there's sort of, this is closing out a chapter in your life and and certainly uh, a lot was learned here. A lot was accomplished and parts of it will, will still be ongoing with both your, uh, you know, t- taking away what you've learned with your degree as well as working on mask. But we have to ask what is next in terms of like with the opportunities. And I know GW is coming to a close. Where are you looking towards for your next chapter? Right. So it, it, it's interesting. The The main reason I got into coaching is that I had such a tremendous experience as a student athlete that I wanted to reciprocate that to future student athletes. And I went into coaching, not knowing if I really wanted to do it forever. And, um, I, with my time at GW, I felt like I've been able to do a lot of what I wanted to do. And so I will be staying in Washington. I will be moving out of college squash full time and stay tuned. And I I look forward to being able to kind of talk about it a bit more, but I'm still going to stay involved with the mid Atlantic squash conference. So I'll be able, you know, still be hanging around college squash, which I'm really excited about. And yeah, so whole lot of change in the last six months to a year. Well, it's exciting to have you uh, still involved with the conference because I think there's a, a, a lot of opportunity there and can be its own catalyst of growth even by itself. And uh, thank you for all the, the efforts you've put into College Squash. And I do want to quickly, we have a tradition here also going into a little quick fire. So we're going awesome. we're gonna to switch gears. And as people are starting to learn like, with the quick fire, we break it down into two sections. One is about squash and then the other one's about getting to know you a little bit more. So sure. you ready for the quick fire? Absolutely. So the first section here is I'm going to uh, name a kind of area of the sport and just kind of mm-hmm. give your your 90 seconds or two minute overview of, you know, either your impressions or what you like about it or what you want to see improved. And so um, we'll start off with college squash. And I know that you there's so many different this is, you know, your bread and butter. You're yeah. deeply immersed on this. But yeah. I, I guess let me phrase it a different way of like if you were suddenly in charge of all college squash, mm-hmm. right? And you could snap your fingers and do anything. Where would you try and aim? What would be the promised land that you would try and get to? What would be your initiative that you'd really want to get behind? I think there are so many unique stories and dynamics that you can only get in college squash. And I think now, especially that you have so many different platforms to publicize and document sporting events now that just widening our reach. Sports where Trinity College, a school of 3,000 people, is beating Harvard in a varsity competition, you know, that's not something you see every day. And that was not to, you know, bash Harvard. They've been an incredible program, both on the men's and women's side, for a long time. But our game is just so unique. We have people from all corners of the globe all come to one place and all kind of bond together over this one goal of getting better of this weird racket sport that's played in these tight, cramped rooms and corners of athletic facilities that half the people who go to the school don't know exist until they step foot on campus. So telling those stories, communicating the, the unique rivalries, the unique dynamics of competition just using this growth in media and video platforms to kind of continue to grow our grow our game. And I think the CSA has done a tremendous job and David Pullman's done a tremendous job to kind of take advantage of that during the pandemic. Yeah, I completely agree. And you know, that I think there's a huge opportunity there. And certainly that's that's kind of what sparked even Squash Radio here is just trying mm-hmm. to help play a little bit of part uh, of that. 
One thing I just recall that was a hot debate recently, and I wonder more so the way I would frame this was, and, and the, the topic was going to play in the PSA tour or college. And yeah. I want to skip that debate, but go into, mm -hmm. you had some high caliber players and would you ever talk to them about what it might look like going uh, on the pro tour? Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had conversations with uh, a few of my players about it. And, um, and I, I think. I'm what are the hurdles to... that they're, they're facing in terms of like, why not go pursue that? I, I think it's all financial and, it, and it, the, it's never an issue about a love of the game, but it's, can you support yourself and play a full season of track, you know, that with the, where all the tournaments are in different corners of the globe, are you going to be able to have the sponsorship support or do you have a different form of support that is going to enable you to play a full fledged season? Um, so I think that as in the grand scheme of things is, is one thing, but also, College squash is a big commitment and some people that they're okay with that's, that's the end of their career. And I totally understand that then. And that kind of my situation, um, that I worked so incredibly hard and, um, on and off the court for the team that you know, I was ready to kind of do something different. So I think it takes a, a certain type of person and a certain type of athlete to, even be in that mindset. And I have the utmost respect for people who do, um, but it's putting themselves in a position to have the infrastructure to really kind of give it a full go. Um, so that makes sense. So the next area is junior squash. And mm -hmm. what I'd like to take advantage of is you, you've gone through the whole system, so to speak, but as you're moving away from college squash, what is that piece of advice that you would give from, I guess, more from a recruiting perspective? Of, um, of, yeah, of what I think what tends to happen is parents are focused, parents and juniors are focused in one area, recruiters are fo or, or colleges are focused in another area. And, and by the way, I was just quickly listening to this podcast, which is entrepreneurs versus investors and their mm. different mindsets and what they look for. So I think this is common that people are looking in different areas, but I just like to yeah. get your parting piece of advice on that. Yeah. Um, very, very happy that you asked this question because I, can't tell this to enough people. Parents, let your kid do the entire squash recruiting process. That's it. <laughs> you know, that at least from my perspective, you could always tell when a kid was genuinely interested in GW or they were just there to appease their parents. And that, and I think you're almost kind of doing a disservice to your child of, you know, and I've the, I had a tremendous model for this that, and I have the utmost respect for the way that my parents and specifically my, my dad went about it, that my, the summer of my junior year of high school, I went up and visited, I think six, seven schools, kind of all in new England. And I, you know, have meetings organized with the coaches when I get there and my dad and I would split driving time and he'd see to it that I got to the meeting. And then the second the meeting started, he'd, start walking around campus and just kind of kept, kept time to himself to allow for myself and the coach to have a beneficial conversation. And of course I understand the parents are typically the ones paying the bills. There's, they have a stake in this as well, but I think it is much more beneficial for both parties. If it is the student athlete who is doing most of the legwork in the recruiting process rather than the parents. I, I really like that. I think, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so let's focus in on that. If you're giving a piece of advice to then mm -hmm. a, a, a student or potential student athlete, and I'll give my quick one. When I used to interview people, I've interviewed potential candidates for lots of roles over the years. And one of the simple things is like, wherever you're looking to apply, go to their website and read <laughs> like simple stuff mm -hmm. like that. Right. So yeah. like that would be, and I can go into more detail about that, but there's really is an element of like, you need to prepare for a job interview, not just show mm -hmm. up and expect it. So what would be kind of like your, your one minute advice for athletes, potential student you, athletes? You could always tell when a kid did his homework and when a kid didn't, when they would reach out to you and communicate with you. And it was always very clear who was serious, who was seriously interested in your school and who was just checking a box by communicating with you. And it was always a 
very, very easy decision on my end. Of so the the same piece of advice is that yeah oh no seriously that yeah. sometimes I get one or two sentence emails being like hey I'm so and so I'm X ranking I'm from Y can we speak or you have somebody hey I'm so and so I go to this school I do X Y and Z attached as a resume and CV of my extracurriculars and squash accomplishments. I've looked at GW's academic offerings and I'm really, really interested in the School of Media and Public Affairs. I would love to be able to speak more um, about not only the experience as a student at GW, but also as being an athlete. It's night and day. Yeah. Just that first impression that when you re receive email, that very detailed and insightful email B in comparison to email A. And especially if those two players are at about the same level from a squash level, who do you think I'm going to take 10 times out of 10? The kid who did their homework, the kid who's prepared, right? And yeah. it's amazing how indicative that is of how, of how they conduct themselves while they're student athletes. So there are a lot of nuances in the recruiting process that coaches look for. And at least for me, the manner in which communications took place was a big one because you only have one opportunity to make a first impression. I like that. So let the kids or the student athlete lead the way as well as student athletes do a little bit of homework uh, yep. about, about where, and, and I think ultimately it's also finding the right fit is most important in my opinion. Absolutely. Right. Could not, could not agree more that, and I, I'd, I'd meet with a lot of kids and it would kind of be there, you know, similar to my tour that is like, Oh, we're looking at a bunch of different schools. And for GW, I would say this all the time is that GW is a school that you have to want to be in. We're in the middle of a major metropolitan city. This isn't kind of your quiet campus up in upstate New York that you have to want to go to school in the middle of a city. It's a different type of campus feel. The, the student body is just different. It's a different type of experience. And if that's something you want, and I would always kind of encourage them is think bigger picture of what's the experience you want during college. Yeah, And GW could offer a very specific experience. And that's one of the many cool things about college squash is that you get all ends of the spectrum in terms of the college experience with the schools that offer varsity programs. So yeah. I like it. Well, uh, in passing a lot of squash knowledge and experience right there. And now we're going to switch into getting to know a little bit more about you in, in terms of this line of questioning. And we'll start off kind of easy of like, do, do you have a favorite movie or documentary? Okay. Um, okay. So, I mean, Saving Private Ryan, of course, Shawshank Redemption. Those are kind of like the, the, the big guys. And then at least for me during my playing career, I would, I would always either watch Remember the Titans or Miracle before the night of a match. And just those, those Disney sports movies it's just from then are just, are just some great ones. Yeah, um, and then in terms of documentaries, last chance you is great. The, the football one, um, that's, I've always found that to be fascinating. I haven't seen that yet. I'm gonna have to check it out. Oh yeah. It's, um, yeah, <laughs> the first few seasons are, yeah, are pretty exciting, compelling television. I like it. Um, okay. So what is something that gets you fired up? And the quick qualification here is this can be about something in squash world or outside of that. And it can also be something that fires you up positively or something that frustrates you and is negative, but it gets you to action. So what fires Anderson good up? I would say two things. And these are things that I would preach to my student athletes pretty religiously is punctuality and respectful communication. So what that means being on time is the first impression that you have with somebody in that given situation. Being late, I think, is the most rude and disrespectful thing that you can do in any situation. So that is something I hammer home with them. So that's one. And then two, communication. That, for instance, if I'm, if you are texting with player to coach, but you aren't just kind of being like, yeah, whatever, that you're giving thoughtful, insightful responses because most likely the conversation the coach is having with you is to try and help you or benefit you in some sort of way. So you should reciprocate that act in the manner in which you're communicating with them. 
So when there's, when I feel as though the communication is not as respectful as it should be, that always kind of gets me going a little bit. I would say, yeah, those guess pet, pet peeves. I completely agree. So then next question is, what is something uh, like physical or an activity that gives you disproportionate happiness? And the quick caveat there is, you know, I think family, friends, pets, like that kind of stuff, like it's a core part of what, what we do as humans. So what is sort of the non-obvious thing that uh, we wouldn't tell that like brings you like disproportionate happiness? Um, okay, so can I give more than one answer? Sure. Okay. So for one, I have to say being able to go see my parents. I am an only child. So it's, it's a different dynamic. So anytime I can go home and get to see them, it's always an incredible special experience. And getting to see Wagner, the poodle German shepherd mix, all 105 pounds of him is awesome. So that's one. Two, um, during COVID-19, I've picked up court tennis. And for those who don't, it's a very quirky indoor rackets games that was ancient. And because of COVID playing squash, the mask on is, is, it's a different experience. So this, the court's so big, you don't have to wear a mask. So it's just been something that I've picked up and yeah, just kind of feeling, you know, that excitement of trying a new, getting to play a new game, but having worked in a sport and played in it for the past decade. That's not something I've done. Like it's really only court tennis, I guess, in golf, but I'm much better at court tennis than I am golf. So go with court tennis. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up too, because I, I too also learned in Princess Court uh, court Tennis mm-hmm. and with Ivan. And what a treat. And there's only 11 courts in the United States, but its its heritage is also just as interesting and fascinating that it dates, you know, it's the first racket sport really ever played. And it's what then regular tennis as we know it today was born out of and then various iterations from that. So it really is interesting. And it's sort of each court to me reminds me of this kind of like child, not child game, but like this game that was made up, but then we're trying to replicate it that's really hard to do, right? It's like, here's yeah. the penthouse, here's this intricacies. And yeah, uh, there's, there's this, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. The, the asymmetrical court, the asymmetrical racket, the handmade balls, no two courts having like the exact same dimensions. Yeah. yeah it's got a bunch of quirky, fun facts about it. Yeah. It's, you know, all, all that, all, all of that stuff is what's it, it, Yeah. It's, it's been a fun kind of new hobby to get into during uh, the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, all that sort of enamored me more to it in terms of there's so much to this. And not only that, there's uh, each, like you said, sort of each ball was handmade. It, it has a, a slightly different bounce. The rackets are handmade too. So just uh, it was interesting also sort of it just showed to me like, oh, I love racket sports. And I guess the more obscure you get, the more I love them. And yeah. uh, what, a, what a fun game. What a yeah. fun sport. No, and the absolutely. people in it too. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's been, um, yeah, playing out in McLean, Virginia, um, with Ivan and Kaveh has been a blast. Um, it's been, yeah, it's, uh, been kind of a main activity for me to keep active during, uh, during the pandemic. That's so great. yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So the next question is, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Ted talks. Yes. But so here, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give a Ted talk. However, the one rule is it can't be anything that you're obviously known for so it can be something kind of that you're not well known for or the if nothing jumps to mind on that then something you you've wanted to go explore and then share a ted talk about so what would be your ted talk what would be my ted talk huh the and i don't know if this is too close to i'm just going to say it and you can shoot it down the value of the student athlete experience at whatever level. And I played squash in, at a school in the middle of nowhere, an hour from the Canadian border. And those are guys I still talk to to this day, that those are the relationships. I've heard you speak about it with your friends from Denison, that these are relationships and memories that you have for a lifetime. And whatever level, at whatever sport, you know, if somebody's on the fence about playing college sports, 
it, it is typically going to be worth it because it is those are memories that just only enhance the best four years of your life. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think that it provides a level of community, a level of structure too that is important. And I think that when I achieved the most amount of success in college, uh, grade wise as well as you know on court, was when I was the busiest. But mm-hmm. because that really forced me to create more and more structure. So, yep. you know, I think that you're hundred percent right. So, the last question we close out is: Are there any books or because we are on a podcast, I don't read as many books these days, uh, but I certainly consume a lot of podcasts. So, are there any books or podcasts you might recommend? Yeah. So. This is one book that I read a few years ago that I absolutely couldn't put down was Unbroken by Lauren, Laura Hillenbrand, I think. It's about Louis Zamperini, who was the, he was an Olympic track runner and then was a POW during World War II. And it's an incredible story. So that is one book that has been absolutely great. And then in terms of oh, podcasts, See, the thing is, is that I really like, in addition to podcasts like Squash Radio, I'm a big fan of kind of the the documentary type podcasts, typically when they have to do with sports. So like the 30 for 30 podcasts, stuff like that. I always, those are always great for car rides and whatever. I always really enjoy those. But so yeah, those are a few suggestions I have. I like it. Well, I just want to thank you for your time today as well as everything that you've given towards the sport of squash. And I'm so glad that you're still going to remain involved with the with Mass, the Mid-Atlantic Squash Conference. And I think that that can play an instrumental role towards the future growth of the sport. And thank you for everything that you've done. Oh, thank you, Connor. And thank you for everything that you're doing. That This podcast is another terrific avenue to grow the game, the different different way for people to learn about our sports so thank you that you're all that you're doing and yeah really happy that we could carve out the time and make this work this is a lot of fun it's been great all right well, well we'll stay in touch for sure awesome thanks so much connor well thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on squash radio we hope you enjoyed this latest episode but before you leave we just have one quick last message As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and... Well, until next time, be well and have fun.